If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. She opened her hairdresser's business in Dundee, and where she got the money to do that is an interesting story. Did she get it from an aunt in Wales, as she claimed, or did she get it from the Abwehr, the German Secret Service? That was Rodri Jeffries-Jones discussing an unusual spy case from the 1930s. Arse welt could be a nice insult for the book. I, I like coming up with new Viking insults, and so um, we could get a few out of this experience, I think. And that was historical novelist Giles Christian, who has just returned from a trip to Norway, where he was testing out a Viking longship. Hello, and welcome to the History Extra podcast. My name is Rob Attar, and I'm the editor of BBC History magazine, which is the UK's best-selling history magazine. You can find it in all good news agents and on subscription. Visit historyextra.com forward slash subscribe hyphen today for our subscription deals. And we also have digital editions available for the iPad, for the Kindle, for the Kindle Fire and for Google Play. And if you want details of those, head to historyextra.com forward slash digital. Jessie Jordan was a working class Scottish woman who owned a hairdressing salon in Dundee. She was also a spy for Nazi Germany. 75 years ago, Jordan was arrested and put on trial in Edinburgh in a case that would have ramifications for espionage activities on both sides of the Atlantic. Roger Jeffries-Jones is a historian at the University of Edinburgh and the author of a new book about Western intelligence. I spoke to him a while back to find out more about the story of Jesse Jordan and how it related to the work of the Secret Services. Who, who exactly was Jesse Jordan? Well, uh, Jesse Jordan was the illegitimate daughter of uh, Lizzie Wallace, who was an immigrant from Amar in Northern Ireland to uh, Glasgow. So Jesse Jordan was uh, born in uh, Glasgow. Yeah. Um, and then um, her mother uh, remarried and uh, had uh, several children with a man called John Haddo. And finally, she took off to the United States, leaving this uh, family behind. So Jesse Jordan was really someone without uh, a firm family uh, background and felt rejected by her family. And this is, uh, I think, partly the key to her personality, that she was a rejected person. She eventually goes on to become a spy for Germany. How, how did that come about? Well, she... Uh, Married a, a German, she came across uh, a young man in uh, Dundee and uh, eventually he invited her back to Germany and she married him. His name was um, Jordan, so she came to be known as Jesse Jordan instead of Jesse Wallace or Jesse uh, Haddo. Uh, he died in the First World War. She remarried a chap called Baumgarten. That marriage eventually broke up in 1937. So in 1937, she found herself in Germany with a son who was in the German army and uh, a daughter, Gerda, who had uh, by this time 
married, but she found herself in difficulties because she had a hairdressing shop which catered for a Jewish audience and the Jews were being persecuted and her business was falling away. And secondly, her husband's name, Jordan, in German sounded like a Jewish name. And so her daughter was encountering difficulties because she want, she, her marriage was breaking up and she wanted to resume her stage career as a singer. And uh, it was thought uh, by the German authorities that she might be uh, contaminated, as it were, with Semitic uh, uh, connections. All this had a bearing on why uh, Jessie Jordan went back to Scotland to try to prove her Aryan roots. But just as she was making that decision, the Gestapo and uh, then the Abwehr, the Foreign Service of the uh, Foreign Intelligence Service of uh, Germany, got hold of her and recruited her to spy for them. So it feels more like, she, from what you're saying, that she became a spy, not so much for ideological reasons, but for practical reasons, just so that her family could be more happy and, and more successful. Yes, I think that's an important uh, point about her. She was not an ideological spy. And uh, when her defence lawyer in Edinburgh, she, she was arraigned for um, espionage, and when her defence lawyer was making a plea in mitica mitigation, he made the point that uh, she wasn't motivated by ideals and that she was a woman who felt she had no country. She was uh, rejected by all. She felt she had uh, no loyalties. She was almost uh, a post-modern woman. And this is one of the interesting things about the case, that she lacked ideology. Uh, the second thing about the case is that she was a working-class spy. And uh, ever since the uh, publicity concerning the Cambridge spy ring, we tend to think of our spies as being middle class or even upper class. So she was working class, but without ideology. She was certainly not one of Karl Marx's children who disbelieved in the national state and spied for that reason. But the fact that she did spy for Nazi Germany must suggest that she wasn't ideologically opposed to them necessarily. Well, actually, I, I think that uh, insofar as she had any ideological inclinations, she would have been opposed to the anti-Semitic aspect of fascism. She had a, a book on, uh, on the uh, maltreatment of Jews in Germany, which circulated to her friends in, in Scotland. Uh, she had personally encountered anti-Semitism, although she wasn't a Jew herself, but because of her surname, Jordan, and her daughter was being persecuted uh, because it was thought she might have non-Aryan uh, uh, and antecedents. So I, I would have thought that, uh, if anything, she was uh, anti-Nazi because of that. But uh, pressure was brought to bear on her by the German authorities, partly, I think, uh, financial. Uh, and partly, as the uh, Gestapo does, they uh, talk to her about the consequences of not cooperating. After all, she had a son in the armed forces. She had a daughter and also a granddaughter who at the, who was named after her. She was called Jessie as well. At the time when she was approached to spy, this little girl was just three years old. And goodness knows what might have happened to her had her grandmother not cooperated with the German authorities. So once she came back to Britain, what kind of espionage activities did she undertake? Well, the espionage activities fall into two categories. Uh, one of them was passive. She was... Uh, what they called in espionage circles a post box. She opened her hairdresser's building uh, business in Dundee, and, and, and where she got the money to, to do that is an interesting story. 
did you get it from an aunt in Wales, as she claimed, or did she get it from the Abwehr, the German Secret Service? In this hairdresser's shop, she received a mail from various parts of the world, but in particular from the United States and from Czechoslovakia, from Prague, uh, which alerted uh, the local uh, uh, police, the, the posts, postal service and so on, to the uh, oddity of the facts that a humble hairdresser should have all this mail and parcels coming in from North America and Czechoslovakia. And what happened to this, uh, the, the, these items of mail was that they were posted on to Amsterdam or to other, or to other uh, post boxes in the continent, ending up in Hamburg, which was the center of our foreign operations. So these then were, she, she was a communications hub for the Abwehr. The second type of espionage she undertook was more, pro, more proactive. She toured around uh, Scotland and especially around naval installations along the Firth of Force, for example, uh, Rosyth, which is just under the Force uh, Rail Bridge. It was a major naval construction yard and took sketches of installations as, in, as she had been instructed to do by the Abwehr but she showed a lot of personal initiative. And she forwarded these to Hamburg. And uh, she also traveled down to Aldershot and talked to troops down there and made sketches. Then she traveled to a, a village in uh, southwest Wales in Breckenshire called Talgarth. And from Talgarth, she mailed the, that product on to uh, Hamburg. It was near Talgarth uh, in uh, a country house called Velen Newith that her aunt lived. Uh, and uh, this was the aunt who was supposedly put up the money for her hairdresser's shop in Dundee, although uh, MI5 had a handwriting analyst and she thinks that the letters from this aunt were forged. But the aunt did exist. I've, I've ascertained that by talking to the present owners of Velen Newith. So to, to sum up, she did two types of espionage, proactive uh, acting as a spy herself and as a post box, uh, uh, as an entrepot for communications be between America and, and Hamburg. How long was she able to operate as a spy in Britain for? Well, she started in the uh, summer of uh, 1937 and she was arrested in the spring of the following year, 1938. Uh, to, to what degree she was effective is open to question. MI6 uh, traced her every movement on the continent. Uh, MI5 then obtained uh, an order which enabled it to open all her correspondence, which it did. So all the uh, communications she sent and all those she received were opened by MI5, then carefully resealed and dispatched so that she uh, didn't know this was happening. So the espionage she did uh, lasted for approximately n nine months but uh, it was constantly under surveillance by our own security services. You, you mentioned earlier that they were suspicious of the fact that she was receiving all this international post. Was that how they first got onto her? No, it wasn't um, uh, because MI6 had uh, tracked her from the very beginning. Uh, MI6 uh, must have been... Uh, MI6 records are closed, so we don't have this, uh, but one can deduce that MI6 were watching those people who were her controllers. And that's how she came to MI6's attention. And MI5 found out because MI6 uh, told them. But a cover story had to be uh, concocted because uh, MI5, MI6 didn't want the German authorities to know uh, 
that their game had been rumbled. So their preference would have been not to arrest Jesse Jordan and just to let her run and to follow her for an indefinite period, because that gave them an insight into how the German Secret Service operated. But circumstances uh, conspired, uh, which uh, made them uh, feel that they were obliged to arrest her and uh, put her on trial. At that stage, they needed to concoct a story. So they concocted a story that was a typical story. It was about the patriotic British publish being forever vigilant. So the postie, the the postman in Dundee was supposed to have entertained deep suspicions of all this mail coming from North America. Uh, and uh, some of her fellow hairdressers got suspicious. And so the story was concocted and uh, came up in court that it was uh, uh, vigilant local Scots in Dundee who had tracked down this uh, nefarious spy. But in fact, she had been followed all along. The reason that they had to make the move and uh, arrest her was that uh, there was a link to uh, aspiring in North America, the Gustav uh, Rumrich uh, spiring. Uh, at one point, uh, Rumrich, who was a, a German speaker from the Sudetenland in Czechoslovakia, who enlisted in the American army, but then offers, offered his services to the Abwehr, having read the memoir by Admiral Canaris, who was in charge of the Abwehr and been, had been active in World War One. The chap Rumrich offered his services and became involved in what is known as the Rumrich uh, spiring. Now, Rumrich had concocted a plot to capture uh, an American naval officer and uh, to inveigle him into the McAlpin Hotel in Manhattan and uh, there to obtain from him uh, documents about uh, American naval security, which were in uh, this officer's uh, custody. It would have endangered the Americans' life. And so the British authorities thought that they were obliged to tip off the American authorities. The American authorities now uh, set in motion a dragnet inquiry. The FBA, FBI got involved. The ace um, counterintelligence agent, Lamphere, was involved. They mopped up the Rumrich uh, spiring. And uh, it was inevitable now that uh, the identity of uh, Jesse Jordan and her activities would become known to the German authorities. And that obliged the British authorities to arrest her in Dundee and to move her to Edinburgh for what was planned as an in-camera trial. In the event, uh, the British authorities were spared the necessity for evolving all, all that they knew because they were able to focus on her proactive espionage, the sketches she'd made, rather than on her more important activities as a post box. Furthermore, she entered the plea of guilty at the last moment, which meant that the case did not uh, come to be tried in court, even in, in camera. And so uh, MI5 and MI6 were able to conceal what they knew to an even greater extent. Nevertheless, in one way, the cover had been blown on what had been a significant operation for them because they'd been forced to arrest, arrest Jesse Jordan. What was her sentence? Because I'd imagine this, is, this was quite a serious offence to have committed. It was, uh, it was a serious event under the Official Secrets Act, but it was peacetime. And although some people were aware of the growing menace from Nazi Germany, uh, attitudes were more benign 
than they would have been in, in, in a time of international crisis. But nevertheless, she received a four-year sentence. And she went to Sochten Prison in Edinburgh. When the war broke out, she was transferred to Aberdeen uh, Prison, uh, where, interestingly, she led the revolt by the, by the female prisoners, uh, claiming that they were uh, treated harshly compared with the men. She was regarded as a very difficult person by the authorities, in spite of an exemplary record uh, in terms of uh, discipline. That exemplary record got her out of prison when she served half the sentence, but uh, she was then immediately rearrested and interned as an enemy alien. At the conclusion of the war, she was deported in 1945 and had to go back to Germany, uh, where she died in the early 1950s at the age of 67. Do we know whether she repented for what she did? Uh, did she show remorse for having spied for Germany? No, she showed, she showed no remorse uh, for having done that. And uh, that was not part of the plea in mitigation. But she did make it clear that she owed no loyalty to any country. So she wasn't, it, it wasn't uh, as if she was trying to argue that spying for Germany was a good idea. She didn't reject what she had done. But uh, on the other hand, she never endorsed what she had done either. How common was it for British people to spy for Germany in the 1930s? Was this a really unusual case or were there lots of people behaving like she was? They, they did have an, a number of uh, spies. Uh, the uh, German foreign intelligence organisation started to reorganise in 1929, having been wound down at the end of the First World War. Uh, and so they had a, a number of low-grade spies in Great Britain. Jesse Jordan was one of the most effective of those spies, but even so was uh, regarded by Hinchley Cook, for example, who was the man in charge of her case, as he, he called her an amateur. Her uh, tradecraft uh, wasn't particularly uh, impressive. So what the Germans had was uh, a network of low-grade low agents rather than highly, highly trained spies. Obviously, this is a really fascinating story, but what sort of wider points does it tell us about espionage in this period? Well, I think there are various points. On the human level, it's uh, an interesting story. And um, one of the interesting things about it, by the way, is that Finchley Cook, the chap who was in charge of a case for MI5, developed quite a sympathy for her. She fell ill in prison and had to go to the Edinburgh Royal Infirmary for an operation and he, he was full of sympathy uh, for all that. Uh, secondly, one might regard her as an interesting type of spy in that, uh, well, she's a woman for a start. Uh, secondly, she's working class. And thirdly, as, as you uh, suggested earlier, she was not an ideological spy. I think the second uh, major interpretive point is that uh, she contributed to the American awakening to the fact that uh, Germany was spying on them in an aggressive manner. In the mid-1930s, the majority of Americans thought that entering the First World War on the side of Britain and France had been a mistake, and they were in isolationist mood. They wanted to stay out of European quarrels. Now, this is a, a very early shot across the bow for people who entertained those views. And in the aftermath of this spy case, President Franklin D. Roosevelt asked J. Edgar Hoover to step up American 
efforts in the uh, counter-espionage realm. Uh, there were other spy cases that uh, followed in its wake in America, but this was the first, really, to alert the Americans to the fact that all was not well in the international scene and uh, they might be one of the targets of Adolf Hitler. So it did really have wide implications at the time. I mean, it, this was quite a big deal, despite the fact that she seems on her in herself to not have been a major spy. Yes, that's right. Uh, although um, she was an amateur and... Uh, she was really uh, quite naive. She wasn't really well educated enough to be a major figure in her own right. Nevertheless, she was uh, uh, instrumental in uh, bringing about um, a major change in attitudes towards international relations and especially to the threat of uh, espionage from Nazi Germany. Much of the book is about uh, British-American intelligence uh, relations. And uh, this is an episode in British intelligence relations, though my book only touches on it lightly. The uh, Americans demanded that Jesse Jordan went over there to testify in court. And they sent somebody over from the FBI to interrogate her. But uh, the British uh, dragged their heels because they thought that Jesse Jordan was one of their assets they didn't quite uh, trust the Americans to be capable in uh, intelligence matters. And an interesting dimension, interesting dimension to this is that the Scots uh, dragged their heels. Uh, they, they regarded her as a Scot and they were uh, quite um, defensive of her, of her rights. They didn't want her to be dragged over to America and tried on American uh, charges. They, they eventually agreed that the Americans could send somebody over to interrogate her, but, and this is a, a special Scottish touch, only if they paid the costs. So it shows that the special relationship, certainly in espionage terms, wasn't complete yet at this point. Uh, no, it wasn't. Uh, I think we can speak of a special relationship, really, from the uh, First World War on. But uh, this reveals that uh, cooperation did exist, but sometimes it was incomplete and sometimes it was reluctant. And this was the case when the uh, Second World War started. There was a good deal of distrust on both sides, especially when it came to trading um, cryptological uh, secrets. But by the end of the Second World War, the special relationship, special intelligence relationship, uh, had reached uh, a high degree of uh, of perfection. And after the war, Winston Churchill, who was heavily involved with the uh, promotion of uh, British intelligence, spoke of the special relationship between Britain and the United States. And I think uh, when he identified it, uh, that relationship was at its peak, and the subtext there was the special intelligence relationship. That was Rodri Jeffries-Jones. His book, entitled In Spies We Trust, The Story of Western Intelligence, has recently been published by Oxford University Press. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. 
Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. When we think of the Vikings, it's hard to escape the image of one of their ships cutting through the waves on the way to raid some poor unfortunates. But what was it actually like to travel in one of these vessels? Well, one person who might have a better idea than most is historical novelist Giles Christian, who has just returned from Norway, where he spent a few days on board Draken Harald Hafagra, which is the largest replica Viking ship to have been built in modern times. I caught up with Giles recently to get the full story, and began by asking him how he'd come to be involved in this adventure. Well, it was about two years ago. Um, I was actually on uh, on holiday in Norway. We've got a little house over there on the fjords, um, just about um, 45 minutes south of Bergen. And uh, there I was when a friend of mine sent me a link uh, that we, they'd seen online. And it was a chap called Professor Stephen Harding of Nottingham University, um, who's done great work in the area of genetics and the Viking legacy in England, um, specifically in the Wirral in Liverpool, uh, which obviously has a rich Viking heritage. And he was looking for volunteers to get involved with the rowing of a Viking ship. Now, this was... Um, you know, I could I could hardly believe my luck really at the time. Uh, obviously, I was fairly into Vikings. I've written a, a series of Viking novels, and so when I saw the opportunity to to get involved and row a real Viking ship, I jumped at it. How long were you on the ship for? Well, it was actually only we were only um, in and around the ship for three days. Although we were we were off the ship, you know, in between times, it was just um, we were just rowing the ship. And the whole thing about this thing is it's the the largest replica viking ship built in modern times and as such it it has to undergo loads of sea trials and um so what we were doing our job was to help the skipper and help the 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 guys that built the boat kind of work out how it deals with the sea and and what you can do in it and what you can't do in it so we were the guinea pigs really And, and how did they build the ship did you have much an idea about the construction process yeah, it's it's absolutely phenomenal undertaking. You know, this thing is 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 huge. That was one of the things that struck me when I saw it in real life was just how enormous this thing was. Um, and there were, in fact, larger Viking ships than this in the Viking times. But this was what the the sagas used to call a, a twenty-five cess, which is a a ship with twenty-five sections. Um, and there were, which means like there was fifty fifty oars and two man to an oar. Uh, this thing's enormous, 114 feet of oak, uh, you know, 27 feet on the beam, and displaces 70 tons. Um, and so it's huge. Um, <laughs> and it blew, blew me away when I saw it. One of the, one of the first things I was, that amazed me was actually the mast itself, which was one piece of solid oak. And it, I, I actually don't know how tall it was, but it was staggering to see it and to kind of consider the logistics of getting this this piece of oak uh, from Germany, which is where they, they found it. Because the thing about building a Viking longship is you, um, you have to go and examine the wood while it's still growing and try and figure out which which bits of trees are going to make uh, the be- you know going to do the best jobs for the various tasks involved, and and this particular piece of wood for the mast they found in Germany and shipped it over to to, to sort of uh, to build this thing. Um, it's it's stunning, simply stunning. Do you know whether they followed the same construction techniques as the Vikings would have done? Yes, they they did as much as they could. But the thing about it is, there's very little evidence because even the ships that they've you know, they've pulled out of the ground. The two, perhaps two of the most famous ones were the Usseberg ship and 
the Gogstad ship, which you can actually see in the museum just outside Oslo. If, if anyone gets a chance to go to the Viking Museum outside Oslo and see these ships with their own eyes, it's absolutely stunning. And, it, and actually, it was a trip like that that inspired me to start writing to start writing my Viking novels. But the thing about it is, when they pull these things out of the ground, uh, you know, they're squashed and there's, there's, there's bits missing. Um, and even though there were thousands of ships like this built in the, the Viking Age, only a few have been found. Actually, only 13 have been found in Northern Europe. Um, and they're in pieces. So when they're being put back together again, there's a lot of conjecture um, and, you know, there's a lot of interpretation used to try and put these things back together in the way that we think they were put together. So you have to, you know, what do you do when you're constructing a Viking ship uh, in this day and age? Well, you obviously, you look at what we've already found, you look at what's been buried and dug up, um, and you try and you try and figure out how these things were put together. You then look for references in the sagas, um, and you look for references in foreign, uh, foreign contemporary sources from the Viking age. And you look at visual representations of Viking ships, and and you talk to people that sail square rigged ships today, and, and there aren't many of them. So um, it's the whole combination of combined knowledge that goes or that went into trying to put together this Viking ship in a way that was that feels right for the period. Uh, interestingly, some things we couldn't do or, or the shipbuilders couldn't do, for example, the all the rigging of which there's an enormous amount. Usually in Viking times, um, I think most rope was made out of, for example, seal skin. Um, and these days, you can't, you, you just can't go around killing that many seals to, 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 to sort of make rope. So they made rope from, they made the rope from hemp, which was certainly available later on in the Viking age, but perhaps not in the, the early Viking ships. Uh, likewise, the sail was made of silk. The sail is actually... Um, well, it's absolutely enormous. Uh, it's something like uh, well, 3,200 square feet of, of pure silk. And likewise, this would have been extraordinarily expensive to get hold of in Viking times. So I think they, I think they got the silk from China for the ship. So there are elements where they've had to compromise ever so slightly. But uh, when all's said and done, I think it's, you, can, you can say it's a Viking ship. And what was the experience like of actually sailing it? How, how did it handle on the water? Yeah, this is uh, another thing that they don't really know yet is how it's going to handle in heavy seas. We were really at the cutting edge of, of trying this thing out. Um, they haven't been able to take it out in open water and sort of high seas yet because there are obviously laws about these things. But the thing is, it's, it's, very, hard to, it's very hard to get certification for, for a Viking ship these days because it's, it's a pretty unique vessel. So... Um, so it has to go through all these tests. Uh, what we were able to do was row it in sheltered waters. And even doing that, you, you would think it was just a question of rowing it. But in fact, there were so many variables they wanted to try out. They even had us rowing standing up at one point. Um, because standing up in heavy seas, if you stand up, you can push the oar uh, down, which brings the blade further out of the water. So it might be practical in some circumstances to stand up and row. Now, these are things we don't, don't actually know if they did them. But, but we're able to try experimental archaeology to try these things out. Another thing was the sea chests that we sit on. Whether Do you sit on them sort of um, crossways a, a, across the ship or, 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 or do you sit with them sort of facing prow and stern? Uh, you know, is it two men to an oar? Is that better than one man to an oar? Now, we tried both and, I, and we got ever so slightly more speed 
from two men to an oar, but not a great deal. And I think the skipper would have decided in the end that it was more beneficial to have two shifts. So the first first crew would row with just one man to an oar, and then you could put another set on the oars, and you know you could go for twice as long without having to rest. And that might have been more beneficial than going a little bit faster by having two men to an oar. So there are all these things that we're actually trying to figure out, uh, which we just don't know because the evidence doesn't survive. I guess in Viking times, sailing these things and rowing these things was so commonplace that nobody bothered to write this stuff down. What kind of speed could this ship go, do you think? I think we, we managed uh, two and a half to three knots rowing when, when we'd really got into the rhythm of it. But under sail, uh, I think a ship like this in favourable conditions could probably manage tops of about 12 knots, I suspect. But we didn't get to try that out. You know, there are certain things we can't do with it. They, they, they can't take it more than 25 miles away from land at the moment. Um, and they also have to, you know, get all the accreditation to make sure that if something does go wrong, people like us, the guinea pigs at the oars, can get off safely with the minimum casualties. And, and did it give you a greater appreciation of Viking seamanship, your experiences on this boat? Yes, I, I, I just, um, having written about it, that's one thing. And, and, and you obviously, as a novelist, most of the stuff you write has to come out of your imagination. But to actually, to be aboard a ship like this and, and smell it, and that was one of the things I really wanted to do. I wanted to smell it because everything is coated in a resin to waterproof it. So every every bit of wood that you see um, is coated in resin. The, the ropes are all covered in tar. You know, they're, they're, they're sticky. You come off this thing... Um, with sticky clothes, and it doesn't really come off your clothes. And, and I think when you're writing historical fiction, one of the things uh, you can really use to engage your reader is, is this kind of the practical, the, the sights and the, the sounds and the smells of something. So being able to sort of feel how tacky it was. And, and you can imagine, well, if you were a Viking a thousand years ago and you walked into, you, you know, you walked into your local tavern, it would be fairly obvious that you'd just come off a Viking ship because of the smell of the, the resin that would be all over you. Um, the way the way it moves through the water, you know, I, I think we would have felt more of that if we were actually sailing rather than rowing. But just um, it was interesting watching people get blisters on their hands and and blisters on their backsides even because a couple of guys, um, no no names mentioned, had uh, jeans on that had the rivets on the back pockets, and and ended up with uh, bottom blisters, which I'm sure wasn't a Viking a Viking condition, but it was quite funny at the time. So do you think if you were to, let's say, bring out a revised edition of one of your Viking novels, would you edit a bit the parts about sailing in them? I, I guess I probably would, and I, I've, but I'm not going to need to because I'm actually writing a new Viking novel right now. So, And I'm actually setting it in the place that we went to. So I, I get away with saying that this whole thing was for research purposes. That, that kind of kept my wife happy. <laughs> and will there be bottom blisters in a new novel? There could well be bottom blisters. I can imagine a nice um, insult, you know, you, you, you sort of arse welt could be a nice insult for the book. I, I like coming up with new Viking insults. And so um, we could get a few out of this experience, I think. And if, if the ships are able eventually to go to the high seas, are you going to get back on board? Well, it would be an honour to be asked to get further involved in this and actually take it sailing. Um, I, I did tell the skipper that I would I would get him in one of my new books. <laughs> he wanted me to put him in as uh, his name was Carsten. So he said, you know, could I get a mention of Carsten the Strong in one of the new Viking novels? I, I think that can be arranged if he gives me a, gives me um, one of the sea chests to sit on while, while he rows this thing. But they're hoping to take it over to New York. Um, they'd eventually like to take it to to 
you know, Constantinople to Istanbul, which was obviously the old uh, Miklagard of, of Viking legend. So they have very high hopes for this for this ship, but of course, it all it, it's all pending on whether it passes all the the various tests and, and doesn't actually sink. Which you know, at this point, it, it, no one knows. It could you could take it out in the high seas and it could it could sink. Who knows? I suppose there wasn't much safety on board a Viking ship. I don't think there was. I think you'd put your trust in the gods um, and you would carry your Thor's hammer. Everybody seemed to have a Thor's hammer or some piece of Norse um, Norse jewellery or symbolism about their person on this thing, which is quite interesting to see. You know, we've come very far, but people are still superstitious, especially around the sea. And did you all dress as Vikings during the trials? Um, we didn't dress as Vikings. Some some people did. They, that we were at a place called Carmoy, which is uh, just next to Hogesund, um on Norway's west coast, and it, there was a Viking festival on at the time. So there was there were there were many Vikings walking around. But um, those of us that were that were volunteers, guinea pigs to row, we were we were just in uh, normal civvies. And your latest book actually deals with quite a different period, the, the Civil War era. But do you see any parallels at all between these two parts of history? The parallels between the, the Viking series and the Civil War series? Well, I think probably the biggest parallel is is in camaraderie. And I think that that's just a thread that runs through both series. You know, guys, men being involved in, um, in sort of uh, huge events and, and, and sort of being fearful but but how they kind of get by that with the black humor and the and the camaraderie of a of a group of fighting men um but the the series are very different the viking series is is a bunch of vikings doing pretty ghastly things and in some places seeming to enjoy it rather too much but the english civil war books are more of a, of a family saga about uh, two brothers and a sister who are torn apart by the by circumstances of, of the english civil war so they are really quite different yeah I'm sure we have several of our listeners will be fans of your works. What can they expect from your latest book? The, the book that's out at the moment, uh, or, the, or the book that I'm writing now? The book that I think is published around now, isn't it? It's volume two in the Civil War series. Yes, so volume two in the Civil War series, uh, in the, the Bleeding Land series, is it, it really focuses on the two brothers, Mun, um, which, who's Edmund, Tom, his brother, and their sister Bess. And in the first book, Tom was quite a dark character. He, he was motivated really by thoughts of revenge. Edmund Munn was more of an I- idealist and he, he was always going to fight for the king um, and, and do his duty. And Bess in this novel, well, her, her sort of driving motivation is to somehow reunite the family. The family's been through a lot. Uh, I don't want to give away any spoilers, but um, there's, there's been a great deal of tragedy. And she believes that if she can bring her brothers back together, get them back under the roof of their home, uh, sheer house, then, then something, you know, things might begin to get better. And what do you think that a historical novelist such as yourself can add to our understanding of periods like the Viking era and the Civil War? Well, I think putting a human face to the period is is probably our greatest contribution. Uh, putting people in the moment, the, the best emails I get are when people write to me and say they felt as though they were part of the fellowship of Vikings, or they they felt they felt as though they were riding into uh, battle at, at Marston Moor, and 
and I think that's what we can do, you know, just just kind of uh, a lot. There's a lot of nonfiction that's brilliantly written these days, and I think that's that's a great change um, for the better. But as a, as a novelist, you get to draw on so many anecdotal um, th- stories and and sort of put them together and fill in the gaps and and create a world that that, that the reader can hopefully inhabit um, and feel like they inhabit. That was Giles Christian. And as we've just mentioned, his latest book, Brothers Fury, is out now, published by Bantam Press. And his Raven series of Viking novels are also still available from a number of retailers. Speaking of Vikings, our latest issue leads with the story of Swain Forkbeard, who became the first Viking king of England exactly 1,000 years ago. Also in the issue, we visit the Mary Rose we explore China's contribution to the Second World War and reveal the joys and sorrows of a Georgian marriage. You can get hold of the July edition in all good newsagents and digitally. And that's almost all for this week. Do get in touch with your views on podcast at historyextra.com and we will do our best to read out some of your messages in future episodes. And you can also follow us on Twitter, we're at History Extra, and you can like us on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash History Extra. Next week, we'll be talking about China in the Second World War and royal babies. It's an episode not to miss. The History Extra weekly podcast was recorded in Bristol and produced by Jack Fletcher. <laughs>